Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. So hello again and welcome back to this episode of Bone Up, our first episode for 2023. Uh, Richie, probably a little late to say Happy New Year, but great to be back in what is now our third year of uh, talking about bones on the airwaves. Wow, three years already. Time flies, doesn't it? It's been a lot of fun. I hope we keep this up for a long time yet. Yeah, it's been good, um, and we're still getting lots of positive feedback uh, from from patients. I have a few patients who who listen to the podcast and ask about it, and uh, it seems to be popular as well with medical students. I, I get some feedback from local students and even from students in other parts of the UK who listen. So certainly, if you're a listener, do do contact us, drop us a line, let us know what you would like to hear. That's wonderful. It's great to think that medical students are listening to the podcast. That's you know. That's an important audience, isn't it? Yeah, Next generation is. of doctors. And in terms of data, you, you've got some numbers for us. Is that right about the, about the number of listeners? Yeah, listeners, we have some really good news. Thanks to you, we have passed 10,000 downloads, which is absolutely wonderful. And the Bone Up Live, the episode we recorded at the Bone Research Society conference is our most popular episode so far we've had about 1,200 downloads. So it looks as though we're getting some traction in the bone research community as well as the clinical community. Yeah, well, that's really one of the aims we had, wasn't it? The fact that you're from a research background and I'm from a clinical background and we were trying to, I suppose, educate and inform and also bring everyone who works with bones closer together and hopefully bring the sort of laboratory bench closer to the patient as well so everyone understands so the patient understands what's going on in the laboratory and so those working in the laboratory understand what patients want and what patients need to prevent fractures yeah i think that's a really wonderful approach i think it's great that you're a clinician and i'm a scientist and we're working together and hopefully we can promote that a bit more across across our whole community and uh the guest that we're going to interview later on today, I think, is going to be a really good example of, of how that can happen. Mm. I'm really pleased that we got such good a good response from the Bone Live at the conference and also with the listening figures afterwards. I think that's really wonderful. It was a really wonderful couple of days meeting people from our community and chatting to them. It was amazing how happy people were to talk to us and how fun the conversations were. And I hope that we can go and do that at other conferences as well. For me, going to conferences is is really critical. As a scientist, it's the best way to keep up on what's going on in the field. Mm -hmm. 
and the really nice thing for us was that not only did we get to go and see people give their talks, but afterwards we got to speak to them, you know, two to one or two to two and ask them more detailed questions about their work and delve a little bit more deeply into what they were doing. That was exciting. Yeah, it was really good. We thought we brought some a little of the flavor of what it's like to be a scientific at a scientific conference to the people listening. So, and as you say, we're planning, hopefully planning to get to another one in the next few months and we hopefully have another uh, another episode of Bone Up Live. So listeners will keep you posted about that. So David, it's only a short while since you left university. <laughs> That's not actually true, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Since leaving, how do you keep up on best practice for medical care? And how do you keep up on how to best manage and treat your patients? Mm, That's that's a good question. You know, just last year there, I, I realized that I had been a doctor for a greater part of my life than I hadn't been a doctor, if I can put it like that. Um, and it's sometimes hard to remember when you think back what you knew about medicine and what you knew about the body before you started to study and the changes that, that have occurred even in the last 25 years within medical practice have been, have been amazing. And even to the point I was speaking to a colleague yesterday about some specific instances where we used to advise, and I mean, 20 years ago, we used to advise patients you know, one way. And now, in fact, we advise patients the complete opposite. And that is because, you know, we've done research or maybe people like you, Richie, have done research. We have the data and we put that data into practice. As an example, when I was a medical student, we were told not to give beta blockers to patients with heart failure. It will make them worse. There were some large, well-designed trials uh, set out, which showed that, in fact, giving beta blockers improved heart failure in most cases. Now we give the opposite advice to people. So it's it's really important to keep up to date with what's going on. Traditionally, people talked about journals and reading journals. Probably very people, very few people read physical journals nowadays, although we do follow them online. But one of the issues is there is so much research going on and so much data there that you really don't have time, even as an expert, to to assimilate and to, to think about and to sort of put it all into an order and indeed to look at the quality of the research as well. And that's why we depend very much now on, on conferences for a start and on reviews, but particularly on guidelines um, and in the field of bone and in my specialty. There are a number of guidelines of different types. They're obviously in the UK, uh, NICE uh, set out guidelines about treatment. Those are based substantially on on value for money and essentially what NICE will suggest what treatment should be funded. In clinical terms, however, in osteoporosis in the UK and I think in other parts of the world, we depend very much on the the NOG guidelines, the National Osteoporosis uh, Guideline Group. And every few years, the NOG produce a new set of guidelines, and there were a new set produced in 2021. And what the experts on NOG do is go through all the important published data in the area of bone health and osteoporosis and grade it in terms of the quality of the data. So they don't just take anything that's published. They look to see how well the research was published and look in really quite surprising depth, I think, to many people at just how good the quality of research is. 
and then they synthesize that into into guidance that can be given to people sort of across the country and say that this data suggests this is the best treatment at the moment research suggests this is the best treatment for you at the moment and as i say we have a new new guidance from nog just published in 2021 and we've already started to put that into our clinical practice and how are you made aware of changes in guidelines do you have to make the effort to go and find out when the guidelines have changed or do you get notified well the there's there's a lot of publicity obviously i mean at a you know to declare an interest here i i'm on the group of experts who has you know provided the or contributed to the last nog guidance so obviously i was aware it came out because i had contributed just a very small a very small part to it and a very small section but there's a lot of publicity and certainly if you're working as a as a clinician in the field of bone health and you're you're receiving emails, you're following things online. You will be made aware that that NOG are producing producing guidance, and in fact, you'll be looking forward to it. I think there was a lot of things people were wanting to hear what the latest data was, and to see what the synthesis of all the latest research was. And so, it's something people will actively seek out because they find it helpful day to day, and because I think they want to reassure their patients as well that they are getting the best treatment because ultimately we try to do anything everything for the benefit of our patients and while you want to be the best doctor you can be and be using the best treatment and the most up-to-date treatment you can as a professional you also want to be able to reassure your patients that you're getting the best treatment and I think from the patient's point of view as well it's important to have these guidelines and in fact the latest NOG guidelines they're published they're on the internet there's the full guidance. There's a summary of the guidance. There's information there for patients. You know, we encourage patients to read this and to use it, to use it to make sure that you are getting the best treatment. And it's therefore actually quite a useful tool in ensuring that, you know, there's equity of access and fairness right across the UK in terms of people getting the best treatment. Because as I say, this is open to patients now and they can they can look at, you know, the management they're getting and compare it to what is the published gold standard uh, treatment that's available. Um, and while, you know, and, and when it came out at first, the first few times, maybe 10, 15 years ago when NOG started, um, it was aimed very much at doctors. I think we're very keen now that everyone reads it, everyone looks at it and that, you know, it's used as a, as a tool for for equity and fairness and something that that is that is useful for patients as well as for doctors there does seem to be a move across all of medicine to empower and involve patients more in the decision-making processes about their care about their treatment and it's wonderful that the guidelines are being written in a way which everybody's going to be able to read and understand because then you can facilitate those discussions you mentioned you mentioned something there while you were explaining the guidelines. You said equity. What do you mean by equity? Equity, equity I think, just means that everyone gets the best treatment for them and that they're not, the treatment is not restricted because of where they live or because they're part of a particular social group. It's not restricted by their ability to access the care, 
related to their income, to their education, to whether English is a first language or not. Um, and again, it's something to just bring it back to my clinic. You know, I was doing an osteoporosis clinic literally this morning and, you know, doing my best for the patients who were in the clinic. One of the ladies had actually cancelled a number of clinics before she came to see me, cancelled a number of appointments, had missed an appointment. She just, this was her, you know, last chance, if you would say, to turn up. And on speaking to her, she clearly needed treatment. She had terrible osteoporosis, multiple fractures. I was able to use the guidelines to get her onto one of these anabolic treatments, which I think will make a big difference to her life. But because of many other things in her life and her social circumstances and her distance from the hospital and many other things, she almost missed out on that. One more failure to attend and that would have been, you know, that would have been the end of that, that section of her her offer, offering to get treatment. And you know, it made me reflect, I might do my best for the people in the clinic, but there's a whole world of people out there who haven't been to the clinic yet people who are fracturing without ever having had a DEXA scan done. The majority of people who fracture their hips and come into the hospital here have never had an assessment done, have never had a DEXA scan. And we really need to think outside the clinic to think, can we make sure that our services are available equally to everyone? People with learning difficulties, people with addiction issues, people who maybe don't look after their health well in other ways. We use a lot of virtual clinics now, which is good and enables us to contact people who can't come to the hospital. There are groups of people who find it very difficult to communicate on the phone or communicate over the computer. So there's many, when we think of equity, we sometimes think of very well-defined groups, maybe you know male or female, racial groups and so on. But actually, when we're talking about equity in the real world, there's all sorts of groups, all sorts of hidden inequalities in society. And it just behoves us to do our best to try to make sure that everyone in our society has access to the best treatment for them, according to the guidelines, according to the funding that we can get. So listeners, we'll put a link to the guidelines in the synopsis for this episode, including a link to the guidance for patients to read. And maybe if you're going to have a consultation or you're worried about osteoporosis, go and read those guidelines and see what they say. I suppose now that brings us on to the next part of the show. And maybe it's time to introduce our guest. You know, Richie, the one thing I forgot to mention as well in terms of keeping up to date with everything you need to know about bone health, it's listening to your favourite infotainment podcast, Bone Up. (laughs) Welcome back, listeners. Today, we have a really exciting guest. Today, we're going to be talking to Professor Celia Gregson, who's a professor of clinical epidemiology at the Bristol Medical School, a consultant orthogeriatrician, and if that's not enough, also chair of NOG, the National Osteoporosis Guideline Group. Welcome, Celia. Thanks, Celia, for making the time to speak to us today. It's a really good off you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So to kick us off then, I suppose the best place to start is talk about the enormous range of research that you've been doing. You've been leading a lot of research into inequalities in the incidence and care of hip fractures all around the UK. I wonder if you could tell us about the variation that you've discovered. Yeah, so um, this work started some years ago um, and actually credit to um, Artie Bimjiani, who did a PhD with us, uh, funded by the ROS, um, which was some of the first work that we did in this area. 
Um, and we were looking at um, big data sets, hospital episode statistics, um, and looking at incidents of hip fracture over more than a decade in um, England. Um, and we saw that over the course of time, um, individuals who live in deprived areas had um, higher hip fracture rates than those individuals who lived in less deprived areas. And actually, um, the difference in terms in the rates of hip fracture over time um, became more um, profound in those individuals who were living in the deprived areas. So i.e. growing health inequalities in terms of incidence of hip fracture. We looked at thing, areas across the UK. Um, we saw that um, deprivation is probably having the greatest role to play um, as a risk factor for hip fracture in men in the north of England. Um, which I think really speaks to the higher levels of deprivation um, that is experienced by a lot of the population, particularly in the northeast of England. Um, and uh, those uh, that, that sort of initial project led on to further work that we've done um, in the REDUCE study. Um, but that was also very much informed by data that, I mean, anybody can have a look at on the, on the National Hip Fracture Database website. So where you can look up any hospital, um, your local hospital, you can look up um, and see how that's performing compared with um, the national average. And in fact, other hospitals around the country. One of the great things about the NHFD is its transparency of data access. Um, and you can see um, within the caterpillar plots, as they're called on the NHFD website, marked variation in the delivery of hip fracture care um, in many domains of hip fracture care time to surgery, time to get out of bed post-surgery, time to see an orthogeriatrician in a hospital and so on. Mm. I was looking at some of the outcome figures from Reduce and they're, they're, they're fascinating and I mean they're worrying the, the difference there is between different areas of the, of, of the country but maybe just ask you about them. Some of them, for example, if you had surgery within 36 hours of your fracture, then there was a reduced risk of death. That seems logical. That seems a fairly hard-edged thing that we could work towards doing. But there were other outcomes like if you, for example, if patient feedback was discussed at the clinical governance meeting, that reduced the risk of death. Now, that seems a much more nebulous type of outcome uh, from your point of view how would you explain those how would you explain those sort of softer outcomes i think there was another one if if hospitals published how long you had to wait before starting community therapy it reduced your risk of, of readmission is that yeah so so there i mean the first thing to say is their associations so um you know, an exposure is associated with outcome and, and saying that there's a direct causal pathway, um, one can't really do from the data set. But what, what we can say is that those hospitals that routinely review patient feedback um, in terms of friends and family, um, classically, um, are at a clinical governance meeting. Those are also the hospitals that have lower mortality. And that's probably because um, that exposure, that, re that um, review of friends and family da uh, data is an indicator of a service that it's got itself a monthly governance meeting, clinical governance meeting that um, is reviewing the hip fracture service um, and pathway on a regular basis and has got an eye on patient experience. 
and is willing to review that information and reflect on their practice from a patient perspective. And those elements are probably a marker of a service that is providing better care and therefore one sees lower mortality. Um, the, the second example that you gave around um, services that have insight into the time difference between discharge and the initiation of intermediate rehabilitation services. Those hospitals um, were also the hospitals that saw fewer 30-day readmissions. And that kind of makes sense. If you are a therapist planning a discharge um, and a handover of therapy rehabilitation care to a community team, and you have an understanding of when that community team may or may not pick that patient up, i.e. how much delay there might be, because the delays are extremely common uh, within the stretched intermediate care services as they stand, then you can risk mitigate in your discharge planning so that a patient doesn't get home get stuck and then come back and be readmitted. So I think they both actually make sense. And yeah. it's surprising, actually, how many hospitals don't have clear understanding of when a patient is going to be picked up by community intermediate care. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because it didn't say if you have a short time or a long time. It just said if the if the hospital was reporting yeah. the, the yeah. length of time. So, yeah, I, I suppose really what I was asking with the question was, is this cause or effect? Is if you have a well-run unit, well-staffed, people are doing well, you're, you're publishing your outcomes, you're listening to patients, or perhaps if, you, if you're not doing as well as a unit, perhaps you're less likely to do that? Yeah, I think, the, I think a lot of the things that have come out of the REDUCE study are markers of a higher quality, more yeah. efficient, well-functioning uh, hip fracture service. But there are also things that you know you can do something about. You can set up a system uh, where your hospital does have a, a regular communication with intermediate care services and does have an understanding on a weekly basis of what the delays are for the start of intermediate care. Um, and that's relatively modifiable at not a lot of cost um, and would um, provide uh, inpatient hip fracture services with a bit more information for their discharge planning. And how do you feed this back then? Because, you know, that's one thing with research now, we're encouraged not just to publish research, but to sort of pick it up and try to feed it back and, and try to use it. Because we were talking about equity earlier, you know, how do we make the service more equitable in the UK? So how have you taken this research? Who have you spoken to? What are you doing with it to try to make things better, let's say, in socially deprived areas? Yeah, so three things, really. One, um, we're feeding all of our results back to GERFT, um, who have been very receptive to um, hearing about our research and our findings. Just just explain what GERFT is, because we have listeners from right the way around the world, believe it or okay. not. <laughs> yeah. so, um, getting it right first time is a um, national initiative, um, and there is a GERFT for trauma and orthopaedics. Um, and that is about... Um, service and quality improvement in order to ensure that patient pathways get it right first time. You do the right operation at the right time initially, um, so you don't have to go back and revise things. You provide care promptly at the right time that is the right care, so you don't have to then go back and, um, and unpick um, an inappropriate decision at the, at the outset. So, um, yeah, and, and so there is a 
there is an expanding girth coming through, I think, um, this year, next year. And I think Reduce will feed into that. Um, the second uh, thing we're doing is feeding it into the National Hip Fracture Database. Um, so Anthony Johansson, uh, clearly key um, member of the NHFD team. He's also one of the Reduce co-investigators. So um, that's really helpful in terms of collaborative working between the Reduce team and the NHFD team. And then the thirdly, and perhaps the most important and the key output from Reduce um, that is really quite exciting is that we're building a toolkit. Um, and you, the listeners might be familiar with the Royal Osteoporosis Society Fracture Liaison Service Toolkit. So a whole array of tools freely available on the ROS website. So we're producing one the same, well, taking the same principles, um, but for hip fracture care. And um, we've already designed quite a lot of those um, tools. They're being kind of proof, they're at the stage of proofreading and that kind of thing at the moment. Um, and we're aiming to launch that toolkit in February 2023. And that toolkit includes things like um, checklists for different components of delivery of hip fracture care, um, how-to guides for multidisciplinary care, for how to do clinical governance well, um, a template handbook for a hip fracture service that you can take and populate with your own hospital's information, um, a, 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 an organogram for kind of the structure of a hip fracture service. But really importantly, um, and where the health economics has fed into um, invaluably, is a cost-benefit calculator. So this is a tool which um, you just have to you'll just have to put your kind of name and your email address in and then you can download it for free. And it's a tool that um, allows you to look up your hospital. So we've we've done it for every hospital in England, and Wales. So you look up your hospital and there are a load of metrics which we have either generated through Reduce or are freely available on the NHFD website, which allow you to then look at the potential impact of modifying up to 14 different um, components of how you deliver your hip fracture service and work out what the cost saving would be if you were to implement a change that enabled you to achieve that particular parameter. And you can follow the working through so that you end up with your calculations and some kind of standardized text, which then goes into a model um, business case which you can then top and tail with your local um, bits of information. And you then have a business case. For example, one of the strongest cost savers is the delivery of weekend physiotherapy post hip fracture. And I can tell you that um, for each, on average, um, for each patient who has access to weekend physiotherapy, um, you're going to save about 600 and 67 pounds per patient per year. Now you can multiply that kind of thing up based on the number of patients who you manage and you can offset against that how much it would cost to employ a physiotherapy at the weekend and then you can work out the kind of benefit expenditure um, and you can do the calculations to go into a business case. So that's really exciting because I think one of the things that clinicians and service managers struggle with is finding the time to sit down and think through how to write a business case for this sort of stuff. And it will all be automated. Um, I mean, obviously, you can tweak it according to your local circumstances, but a lot of that will be automated. And I'm really hoping that that makes life a lot easier for the staff in the 172 different hospitals around England and Wales. Yeah, that's an amazing 
tool actually or look forward to, to seeing that i mean it, it's it's going to be so useful for so many for so many people um i'm conscious of monopolizing things here i will let richie in but i i wanted to ask you about one other thing we, we talked about about equity and about trying to make sure that people for example in the northeast of england get the same care as people in the southeast of england but you're involved in in looking at sort of equity of care right across the world, aren't you? You've been involved with work in, in Africa and in, I think I'm right, the Samson Research Network. Could you tell us just a, a little about that and um, you know why you got involved in that study, what it involve, what exactly it, it, it involves? Yeah, sure. So um, Samson is a sub-Saharan African musculoskeletal network. We have a website, thesamson.org. Um, and that's something that actually Kate Ward, who you've interviewed before, um, who's down in, in Southampton and, and has a program in the Gambia, um, and I um, and colleagues, uh, particularly in, in South Africa, um, we got some a small kind of startup amount of money some years ago, um, I think 2015-16, um, and that allowed us to um, to do some work together, and that led to um, a desire to set up a network to link people up across sub-Saharan Africa who were all interested in musculoskeletal research. So um, yeah, it's a it's a network of like-minded scientists, um, some clinicians, some non non-clinicians, um, who are all interested in MSK research. And the idea was to to build a platform and a network to enable collaboration and conversation with between people who are otherwise not connected, to share learning um, between um, groups in different countries, um, to build capability within musculoskeletal research. So we, we pre-pandemic, we were running um, workshops teaching um, the methods of MSK research, for example, um, and also to try and standardize the measurement of musculoskeletal disease. So making sure everybody's grip strength the same way or DEXA the same way or PQCT the same way so that you can then do inter-country comparisons and pull data. So yeah, that's the principle of um, uh, Samson. In the last series, when we spoke to uh, Prof Kate Ward, uh, we learned about the research going on in the Gambia. You've also been leading research in Zimbabwe, and we wondered if you could tell us about your findings of the IMVAS study, which you published in Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. Yeah, so um, that research was led by um, Rura Mairakuni uh, as part of her PhD fellowship funded by Wellcome. Um, and working closely with my other colleague in Zimbabwe, Rashida Farand. So that was a, INVASC is a cohort study um, of 600 children, half of whom are living with HIV, half of whom not, um, aged um, 8 to 16. And we recruited them um, and followed them up for a year. And the project was all very much around understanding the associations between HIV and musculoskeletal deficits. So that first paper that was published in Lancet, Lancet Child and Adolescent Health um, showed um, quite substantial deficits in both cortical and trabecular bone uh, compartments um, as assessed by DEXA, um, which became even more apparent in those children in the latter stages of puberty. Um, and we also saw that um, of those children who were 
established, well, all the children were established on antiretroviral therapy. I, I should say, actually, that so the average age in the in the population was 12. Um, the average length of time on treatment for HIV was eight years. So that means that most children were getting started on antiretroviral therapy for four years at the age of four. So these children are born with HIV. It's not recognized and they gets picked up as young children and then they get started on antiretroviral therapy. So they've had four years of um, active HIV without treatment. And that tends to set children on a trajectory that increases their risk of stunting quite dramatically. So significant linear growth impairment. So um, that that's it was that background that led us to want to understand more about um, the detail about the bone deficits. So the paper, as I was saying, was is around DEXA. And so in those children who um, uh, were established on ART, so those children with HIV, about a third of them were taking tenofovir, so TDF, um, which is recognized in adults and other populations to be associated with low um, bone mineral density. And indeed, in this population, we saw um, something very similar. So uh, it looks as if um, TDF is not necessarily um, helpful in terms of um, bone density health in children. It's obviously helpful in terms of controlling HIV disease. Um, the, the sorts of levels of deficit that we saw in the children equate in other populations to a 50% increased risk of fracture. So they're quite significant bone deficits. And actually, um, just this month, um, uh, you might have seen a new paper come out in JBMR um, published by uh, Cynthia Mukwesi Kahari, who is another PhD student with me. Um, she's funded by the NIH Fogarty team in Zimbabwe. So she is a radiographer. She's used PQCT in the INVASC population. Um, so she extends the, the work of Ruramai um, to show that um, there are significant deficits in terms of predicted bone strength so SSI, as measured by uh, PQCT, um, which become, again, more manifest at the end of puberty. So I think the concern from all of this is that there is there are many millions of children living in sub-Saharan Africa who had delayed initiation of ART for HIV. If our results are generalizable to those other children, and there's not a lot of reason why they ought not to be, um, then it looks as if as children are growing through puberty with HIV, um, that they are accruing substantial bone deficits compared with their peers. And we wonder whether that is going to have an impact on their peak bone mass. I mean, they may have an extended um, pubertal period and ultimately leave, leave, uh, achieve the same bone mass as somebody who doesn't have HIV, but just later in life. But I suspect I suspect that might not be the case, and I suspect we might see a, a, a birth cohort um, across sub-Saharan Africa who actually will achieve a relatively impaired peak bone mass. And that means um, some years down the line from now, um, the population as a whole will be at substantially increased risk of fragility fracture because that peak bone mass has got to see them through the rest of their life course. Um, and of course, um, it, it's at a lower level. So I think that that is the concern um, and the implication of what we're seeing so far. Is there anything that can be done, do you think, to try and mitigate that risk? 
some kind of intervention that might be able to help people develop better bone mass? Yeah, so potentially, and actually we are um, in follow-up um, of a randomised double-blind placebo-controlled trial in Zimbabwe and Zambia, but only in children who are living with HIV, uh, 11 to 19, um, called the Vitality Trial. And I know that people say that haven't we had enough vitamin D trials, but <laughs> there's never been one in the context of HIV in Southern Africa. So um, we're doing an RCT of a relatively high dose of vitamin D and a relatively low dose of calcium in children with HIV to see if um, that can improve um, uh, bone accrual during adolescence. Um, I think otherwise, um, I mean, population. Well, the other thing to say is, um, you know, in the UK or in, in a high income setting where a mother um, has HIV and increasingly in um, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa because of the rollout of mother to child um, prevention programs, um, that HIV is not necessarily being transferred onto an infant. So um, there is much less uh, there, sorry, there are many fewer babies being born with HIV to mothers who have HIV now because of those programs. Um, and so I think that um, this entity that we're seeing here in this particular birth cohort is hopefully um, not going to be as common in the future in sub-Saharan Africa as it has been in years gone by. Um, of course, there will still be some children who don't get picked up and um, and do get an are born or, or do acquire HIV um, soon after birth. But uh, yeah, that 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 has been a, a significant improvement in terms of HIV programs in Southern Africa. So, if we could, let's say, eradicate HIV in Zimbabwe, how much difference would that? make to the bone health of those children is this the only thing for example i see people living with hiv in my clinic here in the uk and we discuss is it the disease is it the antiretrovirals what's contributing to it but the understanding is if we could make that go away then you know their, their bones would be a lot healthier is living with hiv a marker of other musculoskeletal issues in zimbabwe is it a marker of people who are from lower socioeconomic groups, um, you know, how much is it the big problem or how much is it a marker of other things? Yeah. So in the population who don't, in the children who don't have HIV, their bone density is about half a standard deviation lower than reference populations in Europe, in the UK, for example. Now, that might be because the reference populations aren't right for them, <laughs> or it might be that they truly do have lower bone density. Um, Certainly, the environment that children are growing up with is very different from a high income setting. Um, there are many more nutritional and environmental challenges that make it um, more difficult for a child to achieve its sort of genetic um, potential in terms of musculoskeletal growth. Um, your question about whether there's an association between socioeconomic deprivation and HIV, yes, yes, there is. Um, but I don't know that HIV is necessarily a marker of deprivation um, in that HIV is really quite common and it, it, it affects um, all people in all stratas of society. Um, 
so but there is an association but it isn't yeah you couldn't describe it as a marker i don't think aside from leading these global research projects which are going to have a huge impact on people's lives you are also chair of the NOGG, the National Osteoporosis Guideline Group. And we've talked a little bit about NOG in the last series of Bone Up, but we wondered if you could tell us exactly what the group is and what it does. Yeah, so it's um, it's a group of um, professionals who work in the field of osteoporosis in the four nations in the UK. Um, and it spans different disciplines. I mean, the large large majority of people are rheumatologists, but uh, it includes geriatricians, primary care, endocrinology, for example. Um, and it is entirely voluntary, and it's quite a time contribution, actually, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to donate um, on a voluntary basis. But um, nevertheless, we do. Um, and we come together to, uh, I mean, I guess our main role is, is the guideline. Um, so uh, NOG has had a guideline for many years and um, every few years uh, the guideline is updated to reflect um, the emerging evidence. So NOG's role is to um, appraise the quality um, and robustness of the evidence and to use that to make recommendations that guide um, primary and secondary care delivery of osteoporosis services um, and to make those recommendations in as practical, digestible a way as possible um, uh, so that they can be operationalised by clinicians and allied health professionals working in, uh, in primary and secondary care. The other thing actually I should add is that it has been very important both for this guideline and the last um, that we were able to secure NICE accreditation for that guideline. What that means is that NICE judge that the process that we have followed uh, to generate that guideline abides by the really quite strict rules um, that NICE sets out in terms of impartiality um, and the system by which uh, recommendations are made by a group of individuals. Um, so we're very happy that, uh, <laughs> that the NOG guideline has that NICE accreditation. For that NICE accreditation, uh, that then is a UK organisation that sets guidelines in the UK for doctors to follow when treating patients. Do any other countries around the world use NICE guidelines as a guide for their own guidelines? Uh, yeah, I think NICE, I think both NOG and NICE um, are looked at by many countries around the world. In fact, um, we were just looking the other day uh, at a map around the world of all of the countries that have downloaded the new NOG guidance from the new NOG website since it was launched in April of this year. I was staggered by, I mean, obviously the lion's share of downloads are in the United Kingdom, but there are people accessing NOG across Europe, North America, um, Southeast Asia, Australasia and Africa. So, um, I mean, in much smaller numbers, but nevertheless, it does have a global reach. We're always amazed when we hear and find people have been downloading our podcast right across the world as well, Celia, in South America and Africa. And 
and around the world. You know, I had a I had a medical student a few years ago, and she asked me, "What's the point of guidelines?" And I thought it was a rather odd question. And I said, "Well, they help me at the clinic. Obviously, they stop me having to." think too hard at the clinic and they give the patient reassurance that they're getting good evidence-based treatment. And I suppose there's a role also in healthcare providers in, in terms of, of you know, if, if, there's, if there's guidance that say you need a treatment or you don't need a treatment, then that can help with funding. But, you know, the, the more I, I was involved, as you know, with this NOG guidance and thinking about it, I do think equity comes through guidance as well, because we're setting out saying this is the this is what best care looks like. And whether you live in the Scottish, you know, the Scottish Hebrides or whether you live in London or whether you live in West County Tyrone or whether you live in Sunderland or wherever you live, you should be getting these, this standard of care. This is what, this is what our reading of all the research suggests is the best. And we often talk about empowering patients in this podcast and it strikes me, and I don't know what, what you think of this, that actually it's a way of empowering patients as well. They can take the note guidance and say, this is what's best, and why am I not getting it? Yeah, I agree entirely with you. Um, I think there are kind of two components to the answer. For equity, clearly there may be some um, practices, um, primary or secondary care, that are already delivering everything that's in the guideline. Um, that's great. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there will be some practices that are actually delivering very, very little of that. And they need to change their practice really quite profoundly in order to provide equity in their care. Um, and I, I think the other thing to mention is that we have um, a number of patient representatives on NOG who are very active participants within the whole process of writing guidelines. I mean, their, their help is invaluable. Um, and they specifically have written a patient information leaflet that accompanies the guideline that um, puts the content of the guideline in uh, patient language and makes that accessible. And so if patients are listening to this, you know, you can go on the website and download that as a PDF. And if there are elements in that that you think you're not getting, um, then that is the evidence to suggest that you know, you should be getting those elements that are described in that in that leaflet. And that does empower patients to um, to ask health care professionals for the appropriate evidence based treatments. And some of the evidence is quite new and therefore practice is changing currently uh, quite rapidly. Um, and so I, I strongly suspect that there are elements in the guideline that not all patients are getting because, you know, we've got new drugs that have just recently come online. So, um, yeah, it's an evolving place. But I think that the patient information leaflet is really helpful for patients. And I know you have been very, I mean, you've been at the forefront of pushing this for patients as well. Like probably when the first no guidance came out, would it be fair to say it was written by professors of metabolic bone disease for professors of metabolic bone disease, but almost with each iteration, you know, we're now pushing it very much to GPs that they should be using this guidance. And as you say, now it's for patients as well. It's for it's for everyone um, because everyone needs to know about about what's what's best practice. I, I suppose. Um, I mean, you talked about some of the some of the new drugs, some of the the newest findings. If I had to ask you to maybe highlight one or two things from 
from the latest Nod guidance that people might need to hear about, what would you say were the newest and freshest and most important points from the latest guidance? Um, yeah, I think that uh, we've introduced, as other guidelines around the world have, this concept of very high fracture risk and acknowledge that some of those people at very high fracture risk ought to be considered for parenteral therapy um, as a as a starting point. And along with that, we've made IVs eledronate first line. Um, we've all been using it for years. It's a drug that's very familiar with to us. And I think we should be using a lot more of that, frankly. Um, I think the other thing around treatments is around cautions of denosumab cessation. And ensuring that that's planned because of the rebound bone turnover and, and paradoxical increase in vertebral fractures. And then that brings me on to the vertebral fractures. That is a very strong theme that runs through uh, the NOG guidance, the identification of vertebral fractures, the management of vertebral fractures, um, which and, and there's a section that, you know, hasn't appeared before around vertebral fractures, as we have realized as a community, um, the importance of identification of fractures and getting people onto treatment properly, promptly. Um, and then I guess the other bit is, is a little bit of a nuance change around length, uh, length of treatment with oral bisphosphonates. Um, I think one of the things that we were a little worried about is the evidence that um, this sort of five-year drug holiday, uh, you know, drug holiday, in inverted commas, a phrase I really don't like, um, following five years of treatment tends to actually manifest in you get five years and then people forget about the fact that you ever had osteoporosis in the first place. And then you see this increased risk of fractures in, in a population who actually are really at quite high risk and um, they would actually probably benefit for, the, for more than five years. So uh, although the act, absolute um, message from NOG, you know, the, the actual rule hasn't changed, as it were. There's a nuance around how we phrased it to err on the side of default to 10 years and only give five years in those at lower risk. So it's a slight change in wording, really. They're probably my highlights. Yeah. Is it fair to say, just viewing the way things have moved in the last five years, that while the hip fracture is still the big outcome fracture, the vertebral fracture has now moved center stage as being the red flag for osteoporosis and that we should be sort of pushing both of these fractures as the because I mean you know as well as I do 20 years ago vertebral fractures no one cared about them yeah no I agree I think um I think there's a we've all woken up to vertebral fractures um and the importance of identifying them um and and it gives you a window of opportunity to intervene to prevent the hip fracture um, I mean, unfortunately, after hip fracture, we still have a one year mortality of around 28 percent. Um, and actually, mortality after vertebral fracture is also high. But uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, the other thing is about the evidence base, you know, all of the drugs that we have available work particularly well at preventing vertebral fractures. <laughs> so we need to find them, give the drugs and stop more vertebral fractures. Yeah. Listeners, if you want to read more about the guidelines, we've attached a link to NOG in the bio for this episode. So we're nearly at the end of the podcast now. Celia, thank you so much for your time today. It's very clear that you are one of the busiest people in the bone research community. I was wondering, a theme that 
really runs through your leadership in research is equity of care. And we were wondering, how was it that equity became so central to all of the work that you do? Yeah, I think that that um, is quite a, a deep rooted um, thing. I, I, I just, I just think mm. that society should be fair and just. Um, and I think that goes back to actually my childhood and um, feelings of, of fairness and justice. And I, I don't, I can't really explain that, but it's a trait or, or a, something that I have thought um, all of my life, really, that things should be fair and just. And I, and I think that that underpins a lot of what I do, really. It's really clear that it does. And it's, it's been fascinating and inspiring to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. It's worth paying tribute to the amazing work you do sharing NOG, my uh, limited experience of working on NOG, where I think we're all in awe of the uh, amount of work that goes into that and the quality of the guidance that comes out of it is, is really second to none I think internationally so um, thank you for taking time to come and speak to us today we could talk for twice as long I can't believe that the time has given in already so uh, a huge thank you and um, we hopefully maybe speak to you again in future yeah I mean thank you they're really good questions and um, yeah I hope that it's uh, enlightening for, for your listeners so thanks very much Thanks. Bye-bye. Wow, David, what a great interview that was. I really enjoyed talking to Celia. So articulate, so eloquent, real gravitas. What a wonderful guest. Yeah, we. Uh, she really is a world leader, and uh, I don't know how we do so well in getting getting such important people onto the podcast, Richie, but uh, really no one has let us down, and Celia... Celia's contribution is inspiring, isn't it? I think everybody wants a mug. Yeah. I mean, you're a scientist, and a lot of the things she was saying about would probably be classified as more sort of clinical or, or practical. But, I mean, I could see even, you know, the way you were listening to her. What, what, what do you take away from that which might, might change what you do? I think the most important thing is that seeing a global leader, an innovator like Celia, inspires me and makes me want to do the same thing. And it makes me want to work harder at my basic science and think more carefully about ways in which the science I'm doing might have an impact on the world. And it also makes me want to get involved in more clinical science. And on the research front, I'm trying to get involved in more clinical science, thinking about bone health in people living with HIV, thinking about bone health in people who have been exposed to high levels of air or water pollution, and thinking about ways in which I could adapt the ways in which I am measuring bone health and bring them into clinical practice so it might be possible to make better diagnostics, better screening for osteoporosis, maybe think about ways in which we can measure treatment outcomes and give people better advice and better support about the positive things that medicines are doing for them. It just makes me want to do better and achieve more and do research that's going to change people's lives. That's, it's just so wonderful, so wonderful to speak to people who have changed the world, especially 
people like Celia who've changed the world quite a lot and really have that global global approach global ideas global solutions like it's, it's pretty awe-inspiring really what were your takeaways from today I mean I think you probably even heard me th- heard me as I was listening to her and the questions we were asking her I think a lot of doctors think of guidelines as primarily for their benefit in other words I don't have to read the 100 new papers published in osteoporosis this week and last week and the week before because a group of experts have done that for me and have put the best evidence together and have said this is what is best for your patient so if i see a patient who's just had a new vertebral fracture and has a low bone density i can look at the guidelines and say that patient is best managed if it's suitable for them with an anabolic injection as opposed to maybe an oral bisphosphonate that I might have used 10 or 15 years ago. So that's very helpful for me and that takes a weight off my mind. But actually listening to Celia and thinking more about this, and I think I mentioned it in one of the questions I asked her, I, I now see guidelines more and more as of benefit to patients because the patient can also be reassured that they are getting the best and most up-to-date treatment. And not only are they getting it, but they can also know that if these are guidelines that apply across the UK, then patients should be getting the same treatment regardless of of where they live and regardless of which social group they're in and regardless of the distance they live from the the hospital and so on. Um, And that then feeds very well into what the amazing work Celia has on equity and the passion she obviously has for making things fair and equal in everything that she does. And it makes me think more and more about the hidden inequalities in what we do and how, um, you know, I, I talked earlier about patients. I, I've seen a patient who failed to turn up for several appointments because, because they were a carer for an elderly relative with dementia. And, you know, that that's a group of people who, they maybe don't fit in the standard tick boxes for equality, but unless we make our services available to people who maybe can't get to the hospital at short notice because they're carers, then we're not doing well enough. There are people, for example, who have alcohol addiction issues. If you give them a nine o'clock appointment in the morning, they're much less likely to turn up for that. All these hidden qualities that exist uh, sort of in society. And I see the passion that Celia has for improving things. And yeah, that that inspires me as well. And, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking just about the work you do as well. And, and, and the guidelines and the equity agenda, that's actually really important for making sure that the work you do gets to patients as well. Because if you make some amazing discovery about human bone tissue, then it's important that everyone gets the benefit of that, not just the highly educated patient living in a a well-off part of society who has sharp elbows and who can get themselves to the front of the queue. But it's important that the work you do is available to everyone so everyone gets the benefit of that. Um, And in fact, guidelines are important for that uh, as well. And as I say, the, the, the equity agenda is important for that. And while as a doctor in the clinic, I can look at the patients I saw this morning and think, 
I believe I treated those patients fairly. I believe that they all got the best management according to the latest guidelines. And in fact, I had a student in the clinic with me and we compared the fact that three patients all presented with the same type of fracture in the same way. And yet they all got quite different treatment because we tailored the treatment to what was best for them. So that's good. We finished the clinic and I went out and thinking I did a good job this morning. And then I look outside and I realize that there are vast numbers of people who aren't getting to the clinic at all, who aren't getting assessments, who aren't getting DEXA scans done and think I should be trying to do better for everyone in my in my trust and my community. We want to make sure things are equal for everyone across the UK. And then Celia comes in and says, no, everything should be equal for everyone across the world. And I want to see the best management and the best bone health and the best opportunity given to everyone, whether you live in Belfast, whether you live in London, whether you live in Zimbabwe or or really any part of the world. And that's sort of mind blowing to want to take that that quality of um, quality of care and quality of management and expand it from the patient sitting in front of me um, in the clinic to every potential patient in the world who has problems with their bones. And that's a, you know, that's an inspiration for all of us. It is, isn't it? I suppose when it really boils down to it, it's quite a simple idea that everybody is equal and everybody should have equal access to the best care. But to actually try to deliver that to actually deliver that is is visionary you know it's something that maybe we think about a lot but don't actually do anything about but celia is celia's doing something about it and you know the people who fund your research as well richie they don't want the benefits of your research just to be available to a small group of people they want the benefits to be available to everyone equally across the country and across the world so actually that that fairness agenda it's absolutely central to your research as well mm. because the benefits of your research have to be applicable to everyone and not just to the people with the with the sharpest elbows and the deepest pockets yeah i completely agree and when I'm writing grant applications to get money to do research, there are boxes that you have to fill in. And I think through a lot of my research life, I haven't been able to fill out those boxes very well. And lately I've been trying to improve and change the direction of my research so that I can fill out those boxes properly by looking at things like global changes in climate and pollution, etc. It's been a really thought provoking episode. I think this for both of us, mm. we put a lot of effort, in before the episode to think about the questions that we were going to ask Celia and make sure that we got really good questions that try to cover the breadth and depth of the work that Celia has been doing, you know, and that was, that was really hard for us to do because there's so much. And now having done the interview, there's so much more to think about both of us. We have a lot of takeaways from this episode that's going to affect and change the way that we work and hopefully improve it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we started this podcast, Richie, thinking we'd be talking about sort of osteocytes and bone matrix and, and you know, bisphosphonates. And yet the last few um, the last few episodes in particular, we've talked a lot about ethics and morality and, and fairness and society in general. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think neither medicine nor science can can be divorced from the societies that, that you know, in which we live. 
Yeah, it's interesting that. And what strikes me here is that the leaders in pharma and the leaders in medicine are are both thinking about the same things there. They're both mm-hmm. thinking about providing the best care and they're they're both thinking about equity. That's really wonderful to hear. It gives me hope. That's hopefully a positive note to end the the podcast on this time. I, I think there's another really positive note as well, which is um I was really pleased when Celia said at the end that we had really good questions. <laughs> that makes me think that we've achieved something. Yes, I think I think that's true. We'll take that as a positive. Okay. Uh bye David. Bye listeners. See you all again soon. Bye now.